0: Hello and welcome back to the Hindu Studies Channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkron. You can find it about my background at Rajbalkron.com/slash academia. More importantly, I have the pleasure of speaking today with Marco Ghislani, who's assistant professor in the department, in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of South Carolina, Columbia. And we are speaking about his 2018 Oxford University Press publication, Rights of the God King. Hello, Marco, and welcome to the program.
1: Hey, Raj. Thanks for
0: having me. So if I'm not mistaken, Marco, you and I have sort of been um, uh, yeah, having parallel movements you know, in, in the field. We haven't really had a chance to, to connect or speak, but we were at a conference together in 2011, correct?
1: Yeah. Shout outs to the University of Toronto.
0: Yes, the University of Toronto. It was their very first um, uh, South Asian graduate student uh, conference, if I recall, and they do it biannually now. And since 2011, we both had
1: an adventure. We both um, grown up out of grad school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just finishing at that time and you were in the middle or you finished a couple of years later?
0: Oh, you know what? 2011 is the year I started. Okay. Uh, it was my first year, but I, I did my PhD a bit faster than 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 some, I'd right? Say. So I yeah. I defended say twenty fifteen, if I recall.
1: Okay. Yeah. So I had just finished at that time.
0: Oh, nice! And um, you, no doubt, have a rewarding job teaching and researching out there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've been in the states for forever now. I'm from Toronto, but I've uh, been in the US since two thousand five. So I've been working the whole time. Oh, you can take the scholar out of Toronto, but you can't
0: take the Toronto. That's right, So, a couple of things. Uh, I've been meaning to chat with you, irrespective of the podcast, but the podcast is the perfect excuse because, in addition to the book that we're going to dive into, uh, you recently attended a workshop um, about a month ago. Yeah, Denver, if I'm not mistaken, it's very much related to the book, so we'll That's right. maybe talk a bit about that as well, because I'd love to hear about it because it relates to yeah. a burgeoning strand of my own research. Um, now, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the genesis of, of, of Rights of the God King?
1: Yeah, okay. So um, this book already came out last year, so um, already in hindsight, I can see how I would historicize this project um, in the long term as kind of representing a moment uh, in the... Uh, three different fields, religious studies, uh, South Asian studies, and Hindu studies. Um, I, I was trained uh, in, the, in the mid-aughts, really. Um, and I think that, it, at the, at the, I guess at the most primal level for me as an intellectual biography, this book um, is a partial answer to a question that I've had since as an undergraduate, which is essentially, what exactly is the ritual culture of the Puranas? um and uh, like many uh, undergraduates uh, who begin hindu, in hindu studies we we encounter this religion through the puranas these texts uh from the early medieval period that kind of are compendia of myth and ritual um and other material and um i was always sort of uh struck by the dissonance between um, conventional approaches to uh, um, these texts around the, the early arts, which were st- sort of um, inspired very much by a kind of comparative structural, um, mythological, and slightly literary approach. And um, as, as I started working with these texts um, more closely, I felt like there was something about the genre of the Puranas that uh, was not really being captured uh, in at least that sort of introductory way of thinking about the Puranas as sectarian myths. And so really my my interest was to try to, from the beginning, was to try to look at Puranas um, from sort of non-sectarian, non-mythological perspectives. And uh, so I started really working in sort of regional Puranic traditions, geographical Puranas, uh, with an attempt to sort of try to historicize those texts and, and that genre. And so my early work was really inspired by what I think is a, in the last generation, a kind of uh, historicizing, rehistoricizing of early Hinduism in general. Um, and of course, the Puranas within this wider kind of historical framework. Um, and I think uh, specifically of the, the work that Hans Bakker was doing, uh, or is continuing to do, of course, around the early Skanda um, and, and thinking about Puranic formation uh, over time. With using different texts. Um, and so, you know, in that, gener- in, in that moment there, in my mind as a graduate student, you have, you know, people historicizing the Dharma Shastras, people historicizing Puranic literature, people historicizing uh, Tantric literature. And in many ways, the, the, the first millennium was really open to me, it felt like. Um, and among the questions that were coming out of that period were some sorts, uh, some hesitations around conventional narratives Um, having to do with Hinduism uh, as we understand it sort of in a classroom. Um, And one of those questions um, was uh, was about what exactly is the status of of image worship and the origin of image worship uh, in the history of Hinduism. Um, And I think specifically of some of the uh, essays um, written by my advisor, Phyllis Granoff and um, Gerard Collat, Uh, who were sort of problematizing this idea that that the core of of this tradition is this um, kind of shift between sacrifice and image worship. Um, And uh, so that's one part of the the genesis was sort of uh, my coming of age in in the field, uh, historicizing the first millennium uh, through a kind of philological approach. Um, And another aspect of the project, I think, Uh, had to do with um, a whole sort of uh, tradition of ethnography, sort of post-Dumontian ethnography um, coming out of the 80s and 90s um, and sometimes uh, more explicitly, more or less explicitly attached to a uh, post-Orientalist critique um, that uh, was sort of um, criticizing the older sort of Brahmin purity-centric model of Hindu society. Um, and really rethinking the question of kingship. Um, And uh, so then the the work of Ronald Inden in a way uh, was um, a major statement, I think, uh, which was was trying to sort of reconstruct what exactly was the pattern of kingship in the medieval period, specifically as a way of answering uh, some of the uh, critiques of, of colonialism and Orientalism. Um. So, so there's that sort of more South Asian uh, uh, moment. And then the third thing would be just my training in religious studies and an interest in ritual studies, um, which um, sort of allowed me, I think, to tie together some of these interests, uh, uh, hopefully in a, in a bit of a coherent picture to connect um, these early uh, texts to... Uh, some of the later concerns in the wider South Asian uh, studies and um, w- One of the the crucial moments for me was the discovery of the work of Shingo Eno who is a Japanese Vedicist who uh, spent uh, um, Put a lot of effort into bringing to light these texts called the, the uh, Parishishtas, the Giriya Parishishtas and these are ritual manuals that kind of come at the end of the Vedic period that um, I found very useful for understanding some of the rituals that I was finding in the Puranas. And so that, um, that corpus of text then became shifted my focus away from Puranic literature to really the history of ritual practice uh, as such.
0: Well, there's certainly a lot to chew on in terms of the background and the various strands that have come into this line of inquiry. Um, Maybe tell us just very broadly what the main takeaways of this book are um, such that a general audience might, might yeah. understand where it fits. I mean, you do a really good job of, of, of uh, succinctly recapitulating it. I believe in the in the first paragraph of your conclusion. But what would you say to a broad audience? What is the main uh, yeah. theme value of this book?
1: So we have um, we have an image of Hinduism in relationship to temple practice uh, that uh, that is that the idea that Um, at the core of Hinduism are rituals of worshiping an image. Um, That idea is often held in tension with an older idea, an idea of an older religion in Hinduism known as Vedism, right, that uh, is concerned with sapphire sacrifice. And in the sort of tradition of thinking about Hinduism in the West, these two images have been held in a certain kind of tension. Um, I would say that my argument is that there is a lot of continuity, ritual continuity between those texts. And in order to see that continuity, we have to understand the history of political rituals in South Asia. Um, And the book, in essence, then, charts the life of a ritual known as shanti, which was designed to protect people from inauspicious omens. And the way that they protected people was by bathing them. Um, bathing them using a specially empowered uh, set of, uh, of uh, mantras in water. And I argue that it's this. if we trace the history of this specific ritual form, we will see that there is uh, incredible con- continuity between this earlier Vedic ritual culture and the later culture that we understand as, as Hinduism. And the, in order to understand that, however, we have to um, accept that there was this very vibrant political culture um, that I think in many ways, we've not really paid so much attention to because of the, the ways that we've understood Hinduism as religious and the specific, the specific way that that term religious impinges on our notion of, of Hinduism. So one of the themes that comes up in this podcast
0: on Hindu studies is, is this very serious issue of what on earth is Hinduism? Yeah. and and more than just um, more than just cerebral problematizing the way academics uh, are sometimes prone to, um, mm-hmm. more than any other religion, Hinduism is very much a, a group of things. Uh, um, I, I consider it uh, an ecosystem more than more than a, a definitive tradition. And um, uh, for example, uh, last um, last week, in fact, there was the conference of the European Association for the Study of Religion. Um, at which I presented on a panel basically called Moving Beyond, quote, unquote, Hinduism, but How. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is an issue. So if anyone out there is confused about what Hinduism is, um, you're in good company. Um, right. But one of the key, one of the key uh, ideas that, that Marco is working with is this distinction, and some listeners may be surprised that some, this distinction exists, some may not be, but this distinction between Vedicism and Hinduism. So before we delve into the ways in which your work um, problematizes or bridges this potentially false yeah. distinction, maybe you drill down a little bit
1: on what do you mean Hinduism versus Vedicism. Right, right. Um, well, the way that I introduce it in the book actually is um, using two different uh, educational videos that are often shown in Introduction to Hinduism classes. Um, One is this uh, well-known documentary, Altar of Fire, by Robert Gardner and Fritz Stahl, produced in the the 1970s, which gives a picture of this Agni Chaya ritual, one of the most elaborate Vedic sacrifices, in order to illustrate um, the Vedic sacrifice, uh, which is an ancient sacrifice. The video tells us it's this ancient sacrifice. Uh, It's an aniconic sacrifice, meaning there are no images. And uh, the basic logic is that you offer food offerings into the fire. The gods have been invited to this fire through praise poetry, and they receive those offerings. And the whole process, aside from the fire itself, is invisible, right? Um, and this was a dominant mode of ritual practice, uh, as far as the evidence available to us says, um, from you know, the early first millennium, probably before the first millennium BCE onward. Um, in a traditional his- history of Hinduism, then, there's a major break that's supposed to happen, um, and that break is not really well historicized. Sometime probably around the Gupta period, where uh, or slightly earlier, where the whole ritual culture of this tradition tra- changes dramatically um, to center then on the worship of physical images, statues, uh, often, um, who are representations or actually instantiations of divinity, of the gods. And these gods, typically Vishnu, Shiva, and the goddess, are um, not necessarily well. Some of them are, uh, of course, precedented in the Vedic uh, uh, texts, but they seem to be new in a way. And so this is the sort of the basic structure of, of Vedism and Hinduism. The second, this Hindu, the Hindu practice... Um, uh, the, we often one of the ways that we introduce this in the classroom is through this video, Puja: Expressions of Divine Devotion, uh, which uh, was produced at the uh, Sackler Gallery in 1996, I think. And what's interesting about this, if you compare it to the the um, Altar of Fire video, is that um, we see these uh, depictions of of image worship in contemporary, very contemporary scene in Hinduism, uh, in um, Maryland, um, in, in some diasporic settings especially. And what strikes me about this um, uh, this presentation is that on the one hand, you have an aspect of the tradition that is presented as very archaic. And on the other hand, you have a, a, a tradition uh, of image worship that is presented as highly modern. And part of the puzzlement or is, is that puzzlement, that sort of temporal puzzlement is at the core of, of this book. Why is it that... Parts of the tradition are presented in a highly contemporary way, and other parts are presented in this sort of ancient way. So, for
0: example, if someone currently visits a Hindu temple, whether whether as a practitioner or as a researcher, um, just to bring to life this the, the 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 potential falsity of this distinction. for example there is um, a relatively famous temple just north of toronto it's a south indian it's a tamil temple um, the richmond hill hindu temple um, there may be a festival to uh, a deity let's just say it's a shiva festival you know you're you're going to go during that festival and you will see um, iconic worship of shiva with uh, puja rituals but you're also going to see a fire ritual uh, where Wherein Vedic uh, mantras are intoned, right. and you may even hear hymns. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you may even hear, for example, like the and Jaya mantra, from uh, mm-hmm. the Rig Veda. And so, in 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 modern Hindu practice, the the the, the religiosity of fire sacrifice in the Vedic um, incantation, um, and the religiosity of of temple worship or, or, or um, a Murti um, yeah. uh, veneration of, of, of icons, there they're, they're, they're really is no um, disjunction
1: in terms of modern Hindu practice. Um, would, would you agree with that? Correct. There, 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 the Vedic sacrifice survives in many different forms in the context of temple Hinduism. Absolutely. Um, so, but, but in sort of depictions of Hinduism, um, one of the things that we fixate on, and one of, that's one of the things I'm, I'm sort of grappling with is in this book, is why we fixate so much on the image. And my answer to that fixation has to do with, you know, a whole set of anxieties coming out of the colonial period uh, in relation to the charge of idolatry um, by missionaries in India. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it certainly is. Um, there's certainly something to
0: be said about the elements of Hinduism, which... Um, are most jarring to Abrahamic ideology or the right. other religions of the book, shall we say, from a world yeah. religion perspective. So um, so why don't you tell us, um, you've told us essentially what you hope to accomplish. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the evidence, uh, maybe the two classes of text that you look at and, 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 and what the texts have to say?
1: Right. So at the core of that sort of textual project uh, is trying to, um, bring to life what I think was a uh, professional interaction between late Vedic specialists, ritual specialists, and astrologers sometime in the first half of the first millennium CE. Um, and the story I'm trying to tell there is, the, is how um, the problem of omens and inauspiciousness um, was dealt with, uh, which was brought into South Asia by this new astrological tradition um, that forms in this, in this period. How this problem of of omens and inauspiciousness was then solved by ritual specialists. And so it's about the invention of a new ritual uh, that that, uh, emerges from this interaction. We see this interaction when we compare Vedic ritual texts with the astrological ones. And over time, we see, uh, on, on the one hand, the increasing awareness of omens in uh, these late Vedic ritual manuals, and on the other hand, the increasing uh, salience and familiarity with ritual prescriptions in the uh, astrological texts. And the texts I'm referring to are especially the uh, ritual manuals of the late Atarva Veda the Shanti Kalpa and the uh, Parashishtas on the one hand, and uh, on the other hand, the ritual corpus of Varaha Mehera, this very well-known uh, uh, Indian astronomer of the 6th uh, century.
0: So before you proceed, help me clarify something in terms of um, Jyotisha, or as you call it, astral science, which mm-hmm. is um, more or less a hybrid of what we would call astronomy, astrology, uh, omenology so we'll call it uh, jyotisha so sure. listener when we say jyotisha we mean indian astral sciences um, tell us about this idea that that um indian astral sciences or jyotisha um, enters the subcontinent and it's 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 you know tell us about whether or not this is um indigenous or whether this is stemming from a different Source.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a big uh, question, a long standing debate in the study of, uh, of uh, South Asian astral science. Um, David Pingree, uh, who more than anyone uh, worked to uh, map out the field of astral science, uh, is well known for having made the argument that uh, solar astronomy enters into uh, India from the West sometime, uh, well, in different phases, um, but certainly the, um, the planetary, the solar, solar-based astronomy enters in, especially around the 2nd to 3rd centuries CE, um, and this is related to the shift in the, the civil calendar. We see weekdays um, in the inscriptions, the name of the, the planetary weekdays uh, in around the 5th the century, I think. Um So there is this long standing history that uh, let's debate um, and um, there is a whole new generation of people working, especially on these astral texts that want that are you know trying to complicate this picture um, uh, the for my purposes what's it's sort of less important the original the origination of the astral science uh, uh, but what's important is that we can date the emergence of the Sanskritic astral jyotisha material um, fairly well with Varahamihira in the 6th century. And of course, Varahamihira Mihira is himself uh, appropriating and amalgamating a whole centuries-long history of uh, astral sciences. Um, and so his text is actually, uh, I see his text as, as, as a little bit apologetic to the Brahminical establishment. Um, in, in terms of still trying to make the argument for this for this science, so certainly the novelty of this tradition is 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 really relevant uh, for this project because it, because it gives us a kind of signpost in between the uh, earlier Vedic period and the sort of Puranic period of you know of of some sort of new ritual developments um, associated with Jyotisha. Mm-hmm. And so. Um...
0: So essentially, you, in terms of the, your use of the Atharvavedic texts and the Jyotisha, tell us a bit more about um, Shanti or this idea of appeasement yeah. or the ideology of appeasement is probably something worth unpacking for the
1: audience. Absolutely. So, this term Shanti, which most of the audience will probably um, translate as peace. Um, uh, ooh, is a, is a term that we find in, in the early Vedic uh, literature having to do with um, aspects of the ritual that are dangerous, that need to be appeased in different ways. So it, it means appeasement of, uh, in this earliest sense, it means has a sense of appeasement of dangerous substances like uh, um, hot things, fire, coals are often, you know, appeased, or sickness. Um, and so it's kind of a minor ritual term in the earlier Vedic texts. Um, what I argue in the book is that this term then, uh, at a certain point in the Vedic uh, uh, sort of experience, omens enter into their, into their purview of, this, of, the, of the priestly class as something they need to deal with. And in the earliest texts, the rituals to deal with bad omens, say like a, you know, um, lightning striking the ground or earthquakes or strange rains. Um, these start to filter into the texts, and the way that the Vedic ritualists deal with them early on is through the, this category of prayaschitta or prayaschitti, which means uh, atonement for ritual mistakes. So, um, they, in, in some ways, this new problem of omens is dealt with in a very old way. We're just going to do a simple sacrifice. You know, if the dons don't appear, for example, we'll, we'll say a mantra related to the dawn in the context of a fire sacrifice, and that should do the work of appeasement. Uh, of, of not appeasement of, of dealing with this omen um, as more and more uh, a, a Divinatory literature enters into the Vedic purview uh, We see a new ritual and a new ritual name applied uh, to this problem and that's this this term shanti or appeasement and it, it occurs in the first place in these uh, ancillary ritual texts of the Atarva Veda and and um, uh, the new ritual design for that is has to do with the use of appeasement waters. These are waters which were earlier used to cure sickness um, or, um, or or uh, other sort of remedi- if, if something's lost, um, uh, other remedi- remediatory remedi- remedial uh, uses in the Atharva Veda. But in this late uh, manual. This, uh, and, and this water is actually produced by, uh, putting by, by this very complicated thing where they, they put mantras essentially into the water in different ways, right? Um, and so uh, when, at a certain point, they decide we need a new ritual called shanti to deal specifically with omens. And we're going to design that ritual around this, this, this ritual instrument of shanti water by putting mantras into the water, through the use of the dregs of the sacrifice. So in a typical Vedic sacrifice, you have this moment where the, uh, you pronounce the main formula of the ritual, uh, and then that's, then you finish the ritual. Uh, in this sort of revised sacrifice, what they do is they take the dreg, they pr- pronounce these mantras, and they take the dregs of those mantras, uh, and they add them to a water pot. As a way of charging up the water with sort of muntric power. And that, that uh, water is then used to bathe the officiant and protecting, in, in a way of protecting them. And so this is the sort of the core moment when um, there's a new ritual technique applied to, to these omens, and it sort of goes on from, develops from there.
0: And this, this ritual technique is significant because it shows um, conversation or continuity between traditions.
1: Yeah, I think on the one hand, it shows how flexible the Vedic priesthood was, Um, that uh, it wasn't uh, as if they were unable to transform, uh, to to, to derive new rituals, but they derived new rituals by appealing to earlier kinds of techniques. So the shanti water technique precedes the ritual category of Shanti. Of course, the Vedic sacrifice itself precedes the ritual of Shanti. But those are the things that are available to the tradition when they're confronted with a new problem. So on the one hand, it's, it's a sort of very continuous orthopraxy or ritua- or kind of prescribed ritual tradition. On the other hand, you see that the, uh, the omens themselves are a new problem. And that, that, that problem is linked to a whole other set of literature that was probably not er- very early on sanctioned or, or what's questionable uh, within the orthodoxy. Um, so the, the ritual itself kind of, uh, it, it, it connects to a historical tradition, but it also shows uh, adaptation to a new historical problem. So um, when would you
0: say this in this new horizon of ominological disturbance or issue, well, I understand that, that dating in South Asia is a hazardous affair. Yeah. But, what, but, but when approximately would you say this becomes a problem? The reason I ask is, is I have a follow up question. I'm curious to know where you would
1: place that. Okay, great. Yeah, so, you know, the dating's hard, as you said, but at least we have some dating. Um, we know Varahamihira is, is is operating in the 6th century. Um, he's operating at the end of a lineage of, of, of Sanskritic sources, more or less Sanskritic sources that he cites. Um, and we have the earliest, one of the earliest texts that he cites is this uh, work by a sage na- named Garga. Um, and this te- text has been dated close to the turn of the uh, first uh, of, the, of the common era. Um, you know, that is still something where, uh, where there's a group of us working on this text, and it's still something that we're, you know, thinking about. But we basically have this, you know, half millennial period uh, from the turn of the, perhaps the turn of the common era to the, the Gupta, end of the Gupta period, um, where we know that there's a sort of, um, a development of this jyotish material. Um, the Vedic texts themselves, those are harder to date. Um, you know, uh, Pingri thought these earliest divinatory texts, the earliest one is in a text called the Kaushika Sutra, which is the earliest ritual manual of the Atharva Veda. Um, you know, who knows, that may be closer to the middle of the first millennium BCE. It's a composite text. I think the omen section is a little bit obviously a little bit later. So it could be going back to Ashokan times or, you know, Mauryan times. It wouldn't be surprising to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the, uh, sorry, the other Vedic texts sort of develop in sequence from these, this earliest uh, Kaushika Sutra. So what's sort of, you know, key to the method of the, te- of the book is, to, is that we have a kind of chronology within um, um, textual corp- corpuses. Uh, that helps us to um, at least, say, show the development of this ritual tradition over time. And in the book, I try to argue, um, it's not, of course, conclusive, but uh, I think I'm fairly convinced anyways that Varaha Mihira in the 6th century was working with the paradigms of the Atarva, of these late Atarvan texts.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's fascinating because even... Even by the time of uh, the Valmiki Ramayana, and of course there's hot debate about when that right. could be itself. Um, Absolutely, probably yeah. Probably composed uh, in a period uh, smaller than the overall composition of the Mahabharata, but plus or minus a couple centuries CE, who knows.
1: And you see a ton of this omen material in and, the and Mahabharata this is what I was, as well.
0: Yeah, and in, even in the Ramayana, you, you see... Um, Certainly, there's some omenological material, if I recall. Absolutely, there certainly is knowledge of um, of um, Jyotisha because uh, one of the reasons why they elect Rama's coronation was because of yes. the full moon in Pusha.
1: Pusha, yes, correct. And, mm, yeah. and there's
0: a whole there's a whole subsection and a chapter about the importance of that yeah. um, lunar asterism in terms of rituals of kingship. Mm-hmm. And so, why don't you tell us, or, or, or you know, connect the dots for us in terms of um, uh, the Shansi rituals and uh, the Shanti rituals related to kingship uh, yeah, and the institution of kingship, and how that may foyer into uh, what we now consider temple religion
1: great, yeah, so this is really the middle of the book um up to this point, we really haven't thought uh, we really haven't dealt with um, um um sort of temple Hinduism per se um varaha Mihira essentially for me crystallizes a royal ritual culture wherein these uh, uh, um, aspersion rituals, I call them, uh, bathing or sprinkling rituals, uh, were used to protect uh, royal elites, especially the king, uh, from inauspicious omens. Uh, and in Varaha Mihira, we start to actually see how this becomes theorized, that uh, the, the king has to be protected because he is the root of the tree of the people. Uh, and so there's this kind of um, centralizing of inauspiciousness of, of the problem of auspiciousness and inauspiciousness in the king, um, in the body of the king. And I argue that this sort of culture of ritual appeasement that um, uh, Varahamihira is arguing is how the state really operates, that the king has to be protected so that the, the nation will be protected. Um, travels onward into what become very mainstream coronation rituals uh, of, uh, in the early medieval period, as evidenced in um, the Rajadharma texts of um, Vishnudharamottara uh, and Matsya Puranas. So um, essentially, by the end of the first millennium, we see uh, this royal ritual culture really kind of um, flourishing and And my argument is that uh, the earliest records of uh, of temple worship that we have, especially the the ritual of the installation of a permanent image, uh, were essentially borrowing, um, or the borrowing is probably too weak of a word. They were were constructed in the image of the royal ritual cult that centered on uh, these aspersion or bathing rites. In other words, um, if the king then at his coronation is bathed with uh, these protective waters, um, when you install an image in a temple, you have to use the same ritual paradigm, right? that's one of the questions I ask in the book is why do we, when we install a god in an image in a temple, why do we have to bathe that that god? Um, And so the argument is essentially that... uh, um, the whole complex, or at least um, in this earliest instances, the complex of temple worship, beginning with installation and then following with regular worship, um, was an analog uh, designed as an analog to what what the body of the king goes through in a in it, his ritual uh, uh, calendar. Mm-hmm. And even beyond uh, the bathing aspect,
0: where you know one may conjecture or speculate that ritual baths may have been um, an ancient practice. Um, yes. There's, you know, some may even theorize an Indus Valley uh, a remnant of right. ritual bathing. Nevertheless, when you do see a murti installed, or not even installed on a daily basis in, in mm-hmm. a temple where they're doing the full rituals, um, for the full Abhishekha, they'll they'll do the ritual bath, but then they'll not just offer uh, puja items such as um, fruits or incense or the flame, the no, the puja items that represent the five elements. They will they will treat the murti as a royal guest. They'll right. use a royal fan, for example. Yes. Um. They'll have uh, some sort of procession where you carry the murti about as you may yes. carry about a king. Yeah. And so, so just to clarify, you are saying that the royal Ritual cult um, may well be the prime progenitor to the way in which uh, Murtis are ritually based in worship.
1: Correct. Yeah. So uh, rather than thinking of uh, the divinization of kingship, I'm proposing the regalization of gods. Mm. That's fascinating.
0: Re, there, the, this question had occurred to me of course i i work i also work with Puranas, i work with texts i work with kingship um but i don't work um typically with uh lived religious tradition in the sense of what people are doing on the ground at the moment although of course it interests me greatly but when you do go to uh as i say i i've mentioned the richmond hill Hindu temple i go there it's it's um it's phenomenal actually it's phenomenal the upkeep of that of that temple mm-hmm. and the various rituals and the various mortis and it's it's large and it's ornate and the festivals are just out of this world um in terms of their scale um but i, I often had filed away this very question of what what is the why why is there this royal treatment of the mortis right. why are they treated like royalty what why are you know why is there this like royal fan for example what mm-hmm. what's happening here What's up with that? So, so I was intrigued by your, your suggestion in your book. Um,
1: yeah, let so, me just jump in there because I, I think this is part of, this gets us to some of the larger issues about the, um, the, the question of political ritual. Um, I think uh, we've, we've tended to abstract the religious, obviously from uh, the political and the social in thinking about the history of, of India. Um, and so um, we we take for granted that what we that that um, how rituals uh, religious rituals quote unquote religious rituals develop are somehow abstracted from other social forms, um, and that to me is absolutely part of uh, of the legacy of colonialism, um, and that's what's really at stake in the critique of Dumont. Uh which who, you know, as you write about in your book as well, um, sort of uh, sort of produced this ossified image of the br- sort of Brahminical priesthood standing above this, the king and that being sort of crucial to um, the secularization of, of the state, um, separation of religion, state and religion, and the ultimate supremacy, right, of the Brahmin, of the, of the priesthood class over the political class. Um, what I'm trying to show in the book is that, uh, well, let me f- first say about that there's a whole tradition of ethnography and ethno that shows that that sort of model didn't actually work in colonial times and doesn't work in terms of a lot of uh, ethnographic evidence on the ground, um, that that uh, the organization of society really does center around some notion of, of kingship. Um, and so, what I'm trying to show in the book is that there is a longer history of these royal rites uh, without which I don't think we can properly understand what's happening in temple Hinduism.
0: I definitely think you're onto to something uh, in terms of this specific argument you make. Uh, in, terms of, in terms of the, the general observation, I, uh, I have no doubt that there was a great deal of imposition, imposition in terms of the distinction between sacred and secular. Um, it's a very different tradition, right? Like mm-hmm. Indian religions, it's a, it's it's really hard to grapple with, especially coming from traditions as we come from and that we're trained in. In the West, the background of which is um, Abrahamic ideology, it's it's extremely difficult to grapple with the idea that the divine can actually exist in uh, a quote unquote statue or a morte.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the, this interpenetration between um, sacred and secular power. I think you know the 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 labor exchange between the shudras and the brahmanas doesn't uh, clearly through the lens of Brahmanic ideology. Clearly, the brahmins are at the apex of that. Right. Of that that's not that's model. not
1: the yeah. But that's not the only model available. Right? Exactly,
0: and also even even when. Even through that lens, uh, the, the hegemony is tenuous at best. You can tell that uh, the picture is being painted such that the kshatriyas need the brahmanas, but you can smell the anxiety that, that sure. the, the reverse is true as well.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, I would even say that the whole, the language of of like the divine and the um, the, the problem of divine kingship, I think, in some ways is something I've, I almost like skirt in the book. I think um, that uh, these rituals, of course, they center on the king uh, as the kind of, as a galvanizing point of, of, you know, metaphysical forces dealing with uh, good luck and bad luck, essentially. But that to me is actually a separate kind of conversation from the question of his divinity. The king, uh, um, I I think that the easiest way to illustrate this is to say that um to be the center of a ritual culture does not necessarily mean you're a god in the way that we understand divinity, uh, in the way that we use that term. And there's this great book, a recent book by Ann Mako uh, called Devoting, Dem- Demoting Vishnu, which uh, shows how when the monarchy was um, uh, deconstructed in Nepal in 2008, what they essentially did was take over the rituals of the state. And what she shows in that book is that this idea that, um, that the king is identical with Vishnu, it's part of the a kind of maybe part of a kind of political discourse. You may hear that, but it's not so consequential to the actual practice of the state. Um, that it, the, the belief in the king as a god is not really what gets the medieval state or gets the sorry the, the monarchy moving. It's the ritual practice. Um, and so that, that's sort of, I think, part of what I'm pointing to in the book is that the, uh, these rituals um, kind of operated outside of theology, per se. Um, and that sort that's, of uh, comes back to this, this, the point of, about the, the Puranas, that we tend to think about these, this, this, um, the history of Hinduism in terms of sectarian history. Like, when does certain, such and such God start to get worshipped, right? And then we track the, the uh, history of such and such a sect. Um, uh, but the if we look at the level of practice you 'll see that the the question of theology in some ways is independent from the history of ritual form so then the
0: praxis would you say um, other than an affirmation or an enactment of uh, theological um, truths or theological uh, reality, would you say then that the ritual praxis was more geared towards um, something more pragmatic, such as the appeasement element.
1: Yeah, I think so. And that, that you know, that's the, the, the question of the religiosity of appeasement culture, which is essentially the question of the religiosity of astrology um, is something I'm thinking a lot about as I move forward in my research. And um, there's not a clear answer. I don't really necessarily have a clear answer for that. Um, Like I said, I think that these rituals were designed to manage some notion of auspiciousness and inauspiciousness, and that was theorized as being essential to the good of the state. Um, I think that the question of divinity uh, or theology intersects with that in certain ways, but it certainly does not determine the logic, uh, its logic.
0: Yeah, I suspect um, it may or may not be useful for you to just take a quick look at the Devi Mahatmya. Yeah, I, think, I have. Yeah. I, think, I think there's... Um, it's uh, narratological more than theological, but it's you know the best way to encode, you know, these ideas is through narrative, really. And something happens with the Devi Mahatmya that I think is pertinent to what you're talking about, in that um, power itself becomes mm-hmm. theologized, mm-hmm. and so I mean rituals of kingship occur in tandem with the Durga Puja Barnan, right? And so it's very clear that the king is not the Devi, right? It's very clear that the king is not, right? Um, you know, if, if it was a Vaishnava tradition, the king is not would not be Vishnu. The king is not the Devi. The king is sitting in an office that has some sort of, you may want to say ritual or spiritual or religious power, insofar as power of all kind is um, is. I want to say theologize. I'm not sure if that's the best word, but I think you, you get a sense of what I'm driving at. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, uh, I think power that's... itself
0: is divinized, right, and personified. Yes. and um, something's happening there that I think is really speaking to 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 your point. Uh, but I haven't I thought about it outside of this 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 current moment to, to articulate
1: it better than that. Right. I absolutely think that this this whole idea of the the concept of shakti, you know, the right the right sort of political reading of that is still Still available in a way um, and, and something we could we should definitely keep talking about mm-hmm. so um, so
0: what would you um, uh, to two just very broad questions uh, what would you most want someone to take away from from this from this
1: book <laughs> yeah um, I think I, I, I would say that Um, there are pressures on the way that we want to think about Hinduism. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of that has to do ultimately with our concerns uh, in the secular state, uh, in the secular pluralist state. Um, And what I sort of want us to, to sort of not lose sight of is the work of the priesthood. I think ultimately what this book is about, it's about, um, it's about the life of a ritual, which is about really the, um, continuity of priestly work. Um, and this is why this concept of orthopraxy is something that I try to make explicit at the end of the text, um, that, uh, the way that we, that I think that there are a lot of politics in study in Hindu studies, and one of them is, and part of those politics have to do with uh, discomfort around caste uh, and uh, a sort of a need in uh, sort of especially a Western pluralist context to turn down the volume on that long-standing problem. One of the effects of that is then that we don't really think um, so carefully about. Um, about the about Brahmins and what, what do we mean by a Brahmin, which is so kind of baked into what we understand of Hinduism, but it doesn 't really show up in so so much in popular accounts of hinduism um, and of course that also has to do with uh, anxieties coming out of the Protestant Reformation and um, uh, problems with the idea of the priest in general uh, but I guess what i i 'm saying is that uh, the work of priesthood, the work of ritual um, it, it it is continuous, I think, uh, so much with institutional work um, that that you can you see. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. It, it, it strikes me, maybe I've, I've just internalized
0: this, but um, I, I, I don't mean to say that your point is obvious. Uh, what I mean to say is um, that, well, essentially, I'll leave it at that. I've internalized it, that, that the work of, Brahmanism. The work of ritual is the bedrock of anything we can call Hinduism. Yes, um, absolutely. It's yeah. and it's and I think in light of that insight, um, a distinction between Vedicism and Hinduism, or or even better to your point, um, Brahmanism and Hinduism, mm-hmm. the distinction becomes much more tenuous w- when one understands that Brahminic ideology is is. Is 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 baked into these rituals, which ultimately um, are Vedic,
1: right? Which ultimately are part of Vedic culture. They refer, they yeah, they, they continue Vedic orthopraxy, is how I would put it. Um, sure. And, and and I guess that, that is simply to say that uh, it's we 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 cannot purify, nor should we necessarily purify our idea of Hinduism from a prop, from a from a conception of priesthood. Because um, I think that also I mean, speaks to, uh, you know, um, ways in which we want to imagine ourselves in, uh, as free um, consumers, citizens, uh, whereas while there are, are, we are at the same time enmeshed in all of these bureaucratic structures, institutional structures, um, that people are operating and they're maybe operating on their own, you know, <laughs> as like an operating system in the background, but that's happening. Um, all, all the time and I and so I think actually that the the impulse to kind of under to, to kind of produce a, a, a Hinduism um, You know as a kind of devotional theism around image worship uh, as a modern religion um, is part of the same set of, of, of factors that um, You know we see in modern capitalism or I mean it's related to the problem of modernity
0: well, that's that's fascinating, and and clearly it, it it does no service either to self or the tradition you're studying um, in terms of trying to sanitize it to to conform with um, anach- anachronistically conform with with modern ideals, right? This yeah um, Brahmanism, uh, this uh, th- this caste ideology. This is part and parcel of Hinduism. Um, no less so popular Hinduism. I mean, the Puranas are, are filled with, um, right. Narratives of how one should treat Brahmins. Exactly. That, that's, that yeah. is just, that is taken for granted in the cultural imagination, right. Right. Or yeah. not as taken for granted on the ground, you know? Um, but, but, but yeah. And this is why to anyone who, who really pays close attention to, or, or belongs to, um, Hindu tradition, one doesn't perceive any kind of distinction between, um, the quote-unquote Vedic elements of fire ritual and caste system, and the quote-unquote uh, popular or, or uh, modern elements of um, ritual worship of mortis—they mm-hmm. they really and truly do. Right, and, and in the rituals, you know, um, I've paid more closer attention to them uh, whenever I've witnessed them in the last year or so. Uh, not in small part because of these podcasts that put various pieces of Hindu studies in my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you it's fascinating where um, – so so there'll be a, a – let's just say there's a, a – let's just say it's Navaratri. It's the goddess festival. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they're going to worship the Murti in, in fine style, a full regal flair and all that. But they'll do a Vedic fire sacrifice, and they'll take a thread and connect the um, – connect the locus, the the, the the pot in which the sacrifice mm-hmm. is happening, to the Murti.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's almost like a symbolic joining of these two traditions. Yeah. And and what, whatever they consecrate in the fire, the ash will be part of the ritual bath of the Murti. It's fascinating.
1: Right. Right? right. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of uh, similar kinds of images in the... Um, in the book, what you described uh, reminds me of the quote I have from Donald Swearer. He's talking about the empowerment of a Buddha image, and you have this also this uh, this uh, motif of the thread connecting, like a like a uh, electrical cord, almost. Um, so, in some ways, I guess, yeah, I, I I agree with you, and I and I take the point as well that um, that from the perspective of a kind of modern temple goer, maybe this Vedic can do distinction. Uh, uh, is not as operative as it is in sort of uh, the Western Indological tradition or Hindu studies tradition, um, but absolutely the one of the, the points I'm trying to make is that the that this is part of a, a kind of connected ritual culture, and that maybe we shouldn't see these different aspects of it as so distinctive.
0: So uh, fascinating point, uh, fascinating work, highly accessible read for anyone looking to pick up a copy. Why don't you tell us uh, before we sign off, uh, what are you working on now?
1: Yeah, so I'm working on a couple uh, things. So I'd say three things. One is the, uh, as part of a group of international scholars working on the early history of Jyotisha. Um, I'm, I'm part of a project that's trying to edit uh, this early text, the Gargya Jyotisha, which I mentioned earlier. Um, and so that we're we're doing our best to produce uh, critical editions, or if not political editions of uh, of that very important text in early Jyotisha, which should be coming out uh, uh, in the next <laughs> while. Um, in relation to that, I'm working on a sort of a follow up book, which is uh, um, I think I'm not sure what the title will be yet, but it will be on the theme on the relation between uh, astrology and Hinduism. Uh, and in that book, I'm but part of it is working using this earlier text to help to reconstruct um, the Hindu ritual calendar um, as it crystallizes in Varahamihira in the sixth century text. And uh, that as a way of sort of theorizing a notion of the astral state. So uh, to continue some of this work, but in what I hope to be a little bit less. Um, uh, a little bit more polycentric of a of a of a of a project that deals with different ways in which uh, this state formation um, helps us to think about other problems in Hindu studies, including gender. Um, I'm also interested in the problem of the Odyssey, uh, so uh, that's going to be that's that's sort of ongoing. Um, and the third project uh, is. Also related, but maybe less obviously so, is a a racial critique of Hindu studies. Hopefully this is a bit of a shorter book, Um, but uh, it's a kind of retrospective of Hindu studies pedagogy in the last couple of generations in America specifically, um, and attempting to um, derive uh, productive connections between Hindu studies and Asian American studies. So that's a third sort of project you know i may
0: i'm obviously somewhat biased but that all sounds fascinating um it just so happens that uh purana's kingship uh jyotish and pedagogy are very high on my list of (laughs) my list of interests so we definitely uh will continue talking beyond this interview um For those of you listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Marco Ghislani, who is Assistant Professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of South Carolina, Columbia. We've been talking to Marco about his OUP 2018 publication, "Rites of the God King, Shanti and Ritual Change in Early Hinduism. For all of you out there, keep reading. And Marco, thank you very much for being on the program. Thanks a
1: lot.